Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everybody and welcome to the History of England, episode 253, Europe 9, Confessionalism Unleashed. So, Henry VIII has been laid to rest and we're ready to move on. Although it would be good to reflect just briefly on the results of our poll. I have to say, I was interested that it was so close between Elton and Lodes and it was fun. Thanks to all of you who got involved. I loved seeing the comments and all that sort of thing. For my part, just to declare my hand, I would have voted C. I think it's quite hard these days to go for Pollard's all-seeing, all-knowing puppeteer, though not impossible, and Scarisbrick's quote that I picked was a little bit harsh, though actually a little bit harsher than Scarisbrick himself generally thought of Henry. So I recognise that Henry is very far indeed from being likeable, and is at very least morally flexible, shall we say. I accept that he allows faction below him in a way his father would never have sanctioned, and that this is not a great visionary who drove the ship of state to a specific destination, and that many of the consequences of his actions were therefore not part of a great plan, were unintended, a comment that came up a lot, actually. But I do think he deserves credit for hiring the enormous talents of Wolsey and Cromwell against all his social leanings. In both cases, Henry took the strategic decisions and should have the credit also, therefore, for their achievements. And the modernised governance structure that emerged from his reign, and a strong navy, and the navy board as well. And I'm sorry, I cannot help but have a sneaking admiration for his refusal to bow to the most enormous weight of tradition and diplomatic pressure to defy the church and the world in pursuit of his aims. 
we might remember that his much derided pursuit of a moderate, reformed, but not too radical middle way in religion is, hey, pretty much what we end up with. It's called Anglicanism and will offer a broad church and be the beating heart of England for hundreds of years. True, Henry's middle way was different in doctrinal details to that which Elizabeth chose, but the principle is similar. I find it difficult to have much sympathy for the courtiers who squabbled for power and frequently lost their heads. Though on that, actually, Elaine rightly took me to task for carelessly appearing to include Catherine Howard in that list. I absolutely did not mean to suggest that Catherine was guilty of such political infighting. She was at most responsible for foolishness, with concealment and with Culpepper. It was a slip of the pen. I apologise to Catherine's shades. Essentially, I find in Henry a man I would no doubt have cordially detested. But hey, he was a king. You're not supposed to like them. And for me, he took a series of tactical decisions which quite frequently turned out to be a good call. Anyway, that is absolutely it. Henry VIII, I banish thee. Begone, be off with you. Let your name never more pass my lips. So, wither, gentle listeners, wither. Here's the plan I have for you. I'm not sure you're going to like it, but look, just hear me out. It's quite a while since we've had any episodes on Europe. I think we did Luther, and of course we've come across the various antics of Francis I and Emperor Charles V, though only from an English perspective. The thing is, it feels more important than ever for you to have a European context now. We're coming into a period which has a direct impact on the modern world. Religious toleration colonialism and the Atlantic slave trade, the growth of the nation-state. Over the reigns of the remaining Tudors, Edward, Mary and Elizabeth, you will hear increasingly of religion, toleration and intolerance, war, social and economic change, cultural change. So it's important, I think, to have a context for you, to compare some of the politics you'll hear about in England with what happens over in Europe, a point of reference, a framework. But also, change in England is intimately connected to and affected by what happens on the continent. England, for example, will become a target for continental powers such as Spain and the Pope. And it's impossible to understand religious change in England without Calvinism in particular. So it's important that you have some idea of what was happening on the continent so that you can see what the English would have been looking at with horror, fear, joy, delight or indeed apathy, whatever. And finally... It is impossible to resist all those great stories. I mean, I'm sorry, it's going to be high level, but there are some great stories. So, with all that special pleading, the plan is this. The plan is to do three episodes on European history right up to the end of the 16th century. Today, we're going to start with a few general themes, and then we're going to hear about religion, the rise of Calvinism, the Catholic Reformation... And we're going to hear about Emperor Charles V and his fight to find a solution to the rise of Protestantism in his lands. Next up in the following week will be the threat of the Ottoman Empire and the religious wars that claim France in the second half of the 16th century, which will then leave us on the 2nd of September with the rise of the Spanish Empire, Philip II and the Dutch Revolt. All three humming and dinging, or at least they will be if I can do them justice. So, I promised you themes, and themes you shall have. And after all, the history of Europe for 100 years is a reasonably large topic, so we need some threads to guide us like Theseus to the Minotaur. Europe appreciated that it had a lot of history, though, and realised that it would need to help people out, particularly struggling schoolchildren, answering difficult questions, or maybe undergraduate students trying to find time to carve out a good essay between parties. 
So, European history decided to make sure that there were themes, so that even poor struggling podcasters, diligently working away in the summer heat, could talk about a hundred years of history in something less than a million words. I'm going to talk about some of those themes. One of them, the Renaissance, I believe we have spoken about sufficiently, the passionate investigation and rediscovery of the values and work of the classical world. There is another theme we have also spent much time on, I give you the Reformation and the religious conflict that follows in its wake. Thirdly, the Catholic Reformation now rides into town, shining armour, white charger, credit card and all that. Sometimes known as the Counter-Reformation, a phrase likely to make Catholic historians bristle, quite understandably, at the implication that Catholicism would not have reformed without the Protestants. Both terms, Reformation and Counter-Reformation, express some of the realities of what happens. So henceforth, maybe it should be called, I don't know, the Reformation Counter-Reformation, or maybe the Reformation Reformation Counter, or Counter-Counter-Reformation Counter, who knows? Whatever you call them. The religious strife of the 16th century is fought with an intensity which only the Cathars would have recognised. Fourth theme is colonialism. In the 16th century, the Iberian powers motor forward with the development and extension of their colonial empires, and part of the result was an influx of trade and silver which would have an impact on theme number five, economic and social change. But let us not forget theme six, the growth of the threat from the East, the mighty Ottoman Empire and the existential threat it posed to Christendom and indeed opportunities for alliances. The Ottomans eventually found themselves facing the two halves of the old Habsburg Empire of Charles V in Austria and Spain. And our seventh theme is therefore the Spanish century. The century that saw Spain become the European superpower, champions of Catholicism and by its close, saw it begin to implode under the pressure of all those priorities. So, Renaissance, Reformation and Counter-Reformation, Global Empires, Economic Change, the Ottoman and the Spanish century. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the 16th century. Where to start then? We ended with Luther, I think, when we were doing Europe, so it seemed sensible to start with one John Calvin. Calvin was French, as it happens, which means I am following the fine English tradition of resolutely pronouncing his name wrongly. Calvin was born in Picardy in northern France into a family of the middling sort, to a rather severe father. His mother died when he was a child. It seemed reasonably clear that the Calvins had a precocious lad on their hands quite early, and a lad who seemed destined for the church. However, when he sat down with his checklist of options for his son's career, Calvin Sr.'s quill moved straight over the box for transform the nature of Western Christendom, and instead checked the box for law, which was, of course, a much more traditional route for your good father, and one where he might be expected to make a bit more cash. Into the 1520s, however, Calvin Jr. also acquired all the basic building blocks you needed to transform the nature of Western Christendom. An introduction to humanist thought, learning Greek and Latin and all that sort of thing, and somewhere in the 1530s he seems to have converted to Protestantism, though there are hot debates about exactly when. How hot, I will leave to your imaginations. But certainly, in a speech in Basel in 1533, he got himself into water terribly hot with one of his speeches, and the H-word was being banded about and he is forced to skip down with the smell of singeing wafting around his ankles. But what may have really lit the blue touch paper with Calvin came in 1534 with the affair of the placards. So it's the 17th of October, 
1534 in the morning and the glorious King Francis of France sauntered out of his bedchamber, unvisualising the normal sleepy befuddlement. Maybe his mistress at the time, the powerful Duchess of Etampes, was loudly demanding a morning cup of tea, that sort of thing. As he opened his door, he happened to look at the other side of it, and ah, sacré bleu, and ma chérie, il y a un placard sur la porte. Aide-moi, ma chérie, aide-moi. And if that's not worth an A-star from Longman Audiovisual French, écoutez et répétez, well, I don't know what is. I'm dawdling, sorry. Basically, posters had appeared all over Paris and the four other provincial capitals, loudly complaining about the church and specifically complaining about the Catholic view of the Eucharist. And the protesters had made so bold as to sneak into the royal palace and nail one of them to the Francis's door. Well, Paris was gripped by hysteria. Searches for the culprits were carried out, the prisons filled with prisoners. Trials began and six were burned for heresy by the end of November. There was an official procession through Paris with Francis presiding. Francis banned printing for a while. There was a mass and the day was rounded off satisfactorily with six more burnings. You would have to be reasonably thick-skinned not to pick up from this that the official policy in France was not supportive of evangelical reform. And the relevance to our story is that Calvin fled France. And to cut a long story short, he did not lose his mind, but in 1536 he turned up in Geneva for two years, was slung out of there and tipped up in Strasbourg, where religious reform was being successfully led by one Martin Busser. Now I'm not going to talk a lot about him, but I might note a couple of things. Firstly, that Calvin owed a lot to Martin Busser in the three years he spent in Strasbourg, and indeed Busser would be one of the founding fathers of Protestantism for many people in Europe. And secondly, that Martin Busser will turn up in England in 1549 and have a very significant impact. It makes the point that links between English evangelicals and continental ones were constant and strong. English Protestantism does not develop in a vacuum. Anyway, enough of that. In 1541, Calvin was back in Geneva where he would spend the rest of his life and from where he would inspire a new reformed church. Cast out from your mind the idea that Geneva opened her arms and welcomed Calvin unreservedly. Cast it out, I say. The reformed Christianity and society he would implement there took at least until 1553 to be realised against opposition from the so-called libertines. But in the end, Calvin provided Geneva not just with a new theology, but with a constitution. In all of this, there were things that sound positive to the modern ear. Calvin fulminated against violence, he stressed education and support for the poor, marriage became a reciprocal and mutual obligation as far as conjugal rights were concerned. So, a woman could ask for divorce on the grounds of her husband's adultery. On the other hand, there were things less positive to the modern era. Religious intervened very directly in making sure people were living the life of the godly. Ministers were to go round and question families on their faith. Whatever you happen to be doing at any particular time, there was a reasonably good chance Calvin disapproved of it. That's just a gag, sorry, I withdraw it unreservedly. And then, in 1553, there was the celebrated case of Michel Servetus, which came in the middle of Calvin's last power struggle with the Libertines in Geneva. The Servetus affair was a European cause célèbre, and led to a famous exchange between Protestant theologians arguing over whether or not executing heretics was acceptable in the Protestant view. On one side of the argument was a French Protestant called Sebastian Castellio. Castellio argued fiercely and persuasively that executing heretics could not be justified, 
and one of his lines would echo down through history. To kill a man is not to defend a doctrine, but to kill a man. But it was not Castellio who won the argument, unfortunately. It was Calvin and Servetus burned. The Servetus affair has been seen as the incident that actually lit the torch for religious toleration, in that it established the arguments that would eventually win the day, and maybe that's right when it finally reached the pen of philosopher John Locke over a hundred years later. But in the short term, it had exactly the opposite effect. It confirmed for all to see that the Reformed Church had joined the Lutheran and Catholic churches in approving the execution of heretics. Intolerance was now the official teaching of all the major churches. By 1559, though, Calvin's most important work was finished, the Articles of the Reformed Faith as he saw it. This was the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and in it Calvin set out his key doctrines. Are you ready? Then I shall begin. These are that God is infinite in power and sovereignty, humans are completely sinful and depraved, saved only through the atoning power of Jesus Christ, redemptive grace and the possibility of union with Christ are free gifts of God. There is no free will, for God has determined who will be saved through the redemptive power of Christ and who will not. I am sure this is a crude oversimplification, so apologies to everyone. But at the heart of this is the doctrine of predestination, that God selects the saved, and nothing you will do will make a blind bit of difference. The doctrine of predestination was not new, but it is Calvin that really sets it at the heart of his church. This could be a liberating force, or a rather demotivating one, I imagine, along the may as well go and eat worms with HP sauce, of course. However, in the end, in practical terms, people came to feel that living a good life and carrying out good works were a sign that you had been saved by God. And so the motivation to do those things won out, rather than spending the day with your feet up, drinking G&T, eating crisps and playing World of Warcraft, for example. In Calvinism, the religion and society, or even religion and the state, were closely intertwined. In Geneva, the most powerful organisation became the Consistory, a group of pastors and lay elders or presbyters charged with investigating and disciplining deviations from proper doctrine and conduct and ensuring the welfare of the city. The consequences could be a little dull. Most public amusements such as theatre, dances, dice and card games and even drinking were prohibited or restricted, both because they could lead to more clearly immoral activity and because they're a waste of time for the elect. Iconoclasm was strong, religious images were removed from churches, and meanwhile only two sacraments survived, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Transubstantiation and the Mass were out, the only way the Pope could be supreme was if he would dress himself in a creamy white sauce, and clerical marriage was in. Calvin died at the age of 54 in 1564. By the time he died, Calvinism was the most dynamic and growing brand of Protestantism, spreading into Germany, Poland, Hungary, Bohemia, Scandinavia, the Low Countries and particularly France. Calvinism began to grow in France, despite a fierce determination from Francis I that heresy would not succeed there, though sometimes his ferocity might well have backfired. In 1545, Francis ordered the destruction of over 22 Waldensian villages in France, if the Waldensian community had been a shop, they might have had proudly heretics since 1187 over their door, and over the years had suffered various bouts of persecution. 
It's not known exactly how many died in this last iteration. One estimate, though, has it at 2,000 killed and 700 hauled away to work on French galleys. It's a lot, anyway. While comparisons are odious, as I had mentioned before, might I point out that more are killed for religion in this one incident than in all the years of Henry VIII's reign in England. Oops, there's that name again. But, you know, just saying. Anyway, Francis's efforts were in vain because the Waldensians survived and it could have been this massacre that made them determined to then join forces with Calvin's reformed church. Geneva, meanwhile, had become a haven for Protestant exiles, including the Marian exiles from England, by the way, and famously John Knox. In the 1560s, Knox finally returned to Scotland and there, against the opposition of the crown in the form of Mary of Guise, Calvinism and the Reformation came to Scotland. Knox's legacy was not just the overthrow of Catholicism, but in making sure that it would be Presbyterianism that triumphed in Scotland rather than Anglicanism. Calvin mobilised the printing industry to fight the good fight, spreading the ideas of Calvinism in opposition to the Catholic Church, and pamphlets and religious works poured out from Geneva. It was Calvin that famously preached that it was a little surprising that Christ's foreskin had disappeared 500 years then happened to be venerated in three churches at the same time there's little doubt that this propaganda was very effective. The same can be said, however, of the great Catholic fight back as the traditional church finally took action and decided to put its own house in order. As I mentioned, the reform process of the mid-16th century tends to be called the Counter-Reformation by those with a Protestant viewpoint, stressing the process as a reaction to the changes wrought by Lutheran and Calvinist churches and the Catholic Reformation by Catholic historians who stress the continuous process of reform and conciliarism from the 13th century onward. Both have a point, of course, but it seems a little disingenuous to suppose that the changes wrought particularly by Paul III were not conducted primarily in the context of the latest schism in the fabric of Christendom since the Latin Church had split away from the traditional Church of the Roman Empire in 1046. It had been unfortunate that the tiller of the church was being held by hands as incompetent and venal as those of Clement VII when the challenge to the traditional church had grown. The hands that eventually replaced them, those of Paul III, were every bit as venal. Fortunately for the Catholic Church, they were significantly more competent. Paul III was born Alessandro Farnese, one of the great Italian families, of course, just as Clement VII had been a Medici. Paul III was a flagrant nepotist, the brother of a papal concubine. As a young cleric, he kept a mistress, had three sons and two daughters, on whom he duly and unapologetically lavished various goodies such as Duke of Parma in one case and Cardinal in another. However, Paul III was decisive and competent and was to be remarkably successful. It did take Paul some time to take real action, though he made some initial attempts at reform in the years after his arrival in 1534. But from 1540, lasting changes began to be achieved. Now in this, Paul III had the Emperor Charles V at his side pushing him hard, and it's easy to underplay the importance of this. Charles V can look like a rather wavering supporter of the Catholic cause, because the Reformation of course starts on his patch, and at various points he compromises with the Protestant German princes. But Charles V was an eager exponent of Catholic orthodoxy, but he was simply too distracted by too many priorities to take the action he'd have liked to have done. Distracted by the Italian wars and the threat from the Ottomans, essentially. 
but he was consistent in pushing the Pope to implement reform urgently, including reform of the papacy itself. And so finally, in 1546, the first session of the Council of Trent began. It did not start with a bang, being very poorly attended, and indeed the French boycotted the council until the very last moment in 1562. There was a rather feeble pretense of including the Protestant churches, which went nowhere. And it must also be said that shed-bound storytellers like me need to be careful of giving the wrong impression. The Catholic Reformation and the Council of Trent are not one and the same. The Society of Jesus, for example, otherwise known as the Jesuits, was founded in 1540, well before the start of the Council. But nonetheless, the Council was hugely influential in setting a clear definition of the core Catholic beliefs. So, a brief survey then of some of the main elements of the Catholic Reformation. Famously, the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, combined the fierce piety and military lifestyle of its founder, Ignatius Loyola. Its members were organised into ranks and their aims were to convert the heathen, to reconvert the lapsed and, above all, to educate. Their missionaries appeared all over the world within a few decades, from Mexico to Japan. They were to be enormously successful, dedicated, intelligent and passionate. Loyola understood and learned from the experience of Luther's success with the princes in Germany and made sure Jesuits, wherever possible, were at the right hand of national leaders, as well as carrying out their missionary work. But there would also be an ambiguous organisation. They aroused fear and resentment amongst Catholics as well as Protestants. They came sometimes to be seen as the Catholic thought police and to believe that the end justified the means. They would, of course, have an enormous impact on religious attitudes in Elizabethan England. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Holy Office was established in 1542 as the Supreme Court of Appeal in matters of heresy and assumed control of the Inquisition. Here, of course, we have an organisation that would be even more controversial than the Jesuits and produce even more Protestant negative propaganda and exaggeration, along with some excellent sketches from the likes of Mel Brooks and Monty P. So, you know, every cloud has its silvery lining. Much has been written that makes it clear that inquisitors worked hard to genuinely understand the reasons and manner of heresy. And, of course, it was undeniably successful in its core territories of Italy, Spain and Portugal. Vast overestimates of 300,000 executions of the Spanish Inquisition have been shown to be laughably exaggerated. Others have it as 150,000 prosecuted over three centuries by the Spanish Inquisition specifically, and between three and 5,000 executed over that same period. This is a low conviction rate. However, it is also an undeniably large number of terrified people dragged off to trial and a very visible element to the world of the potential penalty of deviance. It's unsurprising that the propaganda was often believed, when there was such a helpful stream of examples from which to feed, and fear of the Inquisition was ever-present and did its job. As far as the Council of Trent is concerned, 
there were without doubt many that went looking for conciliation and to heal the divisions in the church. Our very own Reginald Pohl went there, convinced by the arguments of justification by faith alone, for example, and was eager to see it adopted as official doctrine and was gutted that the council rejected the idea. Catholic secular leaders such as Charles of Guise in France and Charles V's successor in Germany, Emperor Ferdinand I, favoured allowing clerical marriage and different communion practices. But that is not what happened. I've often thought that marketers and politicians the world over should look at the Council of Trent and the Catholic Reformation and learn its lessons. The lesson that woolly compromise is difficult to sell, that a clear message, even if uncompromising, will usually win over a pleasant but complicated one. That success is often less about doing the right thing and more about doing it right. Not that I presume to tell anyone what good and bad religious doctrine is, Lord forbid, but what I mean is that the Catholic Church chose to reject any idea of compromise and chose instead to simply define its existing message more clearly, to reform and to improve the way it ran itself and then go on the attack. So, things that had been perfectly orthodox in the 15th century were now effectively banished. Ironically, conciliarism messed its Waterloo and the supremacy of the Pope was confirmed. A school of theology called nominalism, the reading of vernacular Bibles, joined it on the naughty step. Core tenets of doctrine and practice such as indulgences, veneration of saints and pilgrimage were reaffirmed. It upheld traditional views of sin, justification and merit. It rejected the various Protestant alternatives to transubstantiation during the Eucharist. It produced a very clear and a very effective statement of what it meant to be Catholic and how to be a Catholic. It had a new catechism, a revised breviary, a set of works to help Catholics practice their religion every day. Catholicism was more clearly defined and the council emphasised discipline and the collective life of the faithful. Before the end of the council, Pope Paul IV promulgated the Index of Forbidden Texts to hamper the spread of heretical ideas and protect the faithful. Of course, it's a move that has to be seen in context. The Index is hardly the only example in the medieval and early modern world of censorship. One author noted, for example, that a work of the philosopher John Locke was banned by Oxford University in 1701. But of course, the Index became an easy target for those looking for examples of Catholic intolerance. The Catholic Reformation therefore had a number of consequences. Without doubt it reinvigorated Catholicism and sent it into the fight with confidence against the spread of Protestantism with a clear message. It's been noted in multiple places that in a way Protestantism was a religion of the word and Catholicism a religion of the image. Obviously an absurd oversimplification, but it does make the point that Catholicism used image very powerfully to enrich lives, to educate and to spread its faith. From the early 17th century, the Baroque movement would begin to flourish with its extravagant and visual art and architecture. However, the Catholic Reformation did nothing to tackle the problems of the papacy, and indeed everything was now centred on the papacy. Furthermore, in southern Europe, humanism was once more reabsorbed by the scholasticism of the Middle Ages. One of the approaches that had come with humanism, the idea of free speculation without preconditions, gave way to a worldview that relied on philosophy as a way of proving the existence of God. The Catholic Reformation also harshly reinforced intolerance. Now it's important to clarify this statement by pointing out that, as I alluded earlier, Catholicism was not alone in this in any way. All of the major churches, Calvinist Reformed Church, Lutheran, 
and Catholic believed in the persecution of heretics. A feature of the 16th century, and therefore the title of this episode, is the rise of confessionalism. Each of the religions worked hard now to define themselves, and to define themselves also in opposition to other churches. Battle lines were now more harshly and starkly drawn. The opportunity for compromise was removed. There was just no wriggle room. If you're interested, I wrote a shedcast on religious toleration and intolerance and how religious toleration came to the West. You will find little of it in the 16th century, as we will see. The wars of religion we will talk about and religious intolerance will lead to a massive displacement of people in addition to repression and death. There will be statistics as we go on, but in this context, the few glimmers of toleration are all the more remarkable. The attempt by Elizabeth I to create as inclusive a church as possible in England and to look the other way while Catholics and Puritans practice their faith was far more exceptional than is now given credit for. Just put that into the context of 150,000 Austrians forced to leave their home and country. In Poland, there was such a wide variation of faiths that it was simply impossible to impose one state religion, and toleration was then embedded in the coronation oath. It didn't survive the 17th century, but it's a unique example in the 16th. And then there's Article 13 of the Union of Utrecht in 1579, which created the Dutch Republic, and provided this formula. Each person shall remain free in his religion, and that no one shall be investigated or persecuted because of his religion. This was essentially the more perfect expression of what Elizabeth tried to do before the papal excommunication and the welter of Jesuits overwhelmed it. There would be a state church, the reformed Calvinist church in the case of the Dutch Republic, but as long as others went about it quietly, all other religions could be practised. It led to the practice of hidden churches, churches set within what looked like residential buildings, so that people could practice their religion and not annoy the authorities. Oakley doakley, let's get back to the more comfortable ground of military violence, shall we? Although, of course, religion will never go away. The Italian wars then between Habsburg and Valois, between Francis I of France and Emperor Charles V. Of course, We've covered these to an extent in that Henry VIII has been involved in them, so no detail required, I think. The Italian wars are tricky to take seriously, or at least I find it so, as a series of dynastic wars that seem spectacularly pointless. However, I am quite clearly being both unfair and myopic, and I formally apologise. After all, although from a distance it looks as though Francis I frittered away vast sums of money in pursuit of an illusory objective in Italy, he could with justice look with horror and fear at the vast Habsburg lands of Charles V arrayed against him and want to do something about it. There is a map on the website. Go and have a quick look. It is pretty terrifying. France is encircled by land from Spain, southern Italy, Germany and the Low Countries. Maybe it's not surprising that he sought to balance this picture of dominance by grabbing northern Italy. The wars both predated and outlived both of Francis and Charles, as it happens, stretching from 1494 to 1559 in the wider sense of a 16th century Valois-Habsburg struggle. The wars ended with the Peace of cateau cambresis in 1559, signed between Philip II of Spain and Henry II of France. Both of them had better things to think about by then, which is not to say that Francis I and Charles V should not have had better things to think about. I am being unusually censorious, and I shall stop. 
Anyway, basically, the French had nothing to celebrate. They were comprehensively chucked out of northern Italy. The Habsburgs had as much to celebrate as indicated by the fact that they retained influence in northern Italy. It's not a lot either way, is it? Actually, the most significant consequences of the wars were not those written on the peace treaty. They lay in three big things, really. Firstly, the impact we have mentioned before of modern warfare. The vast expenditure required to raise and manage armies with artillery and firearms. The development of massive fortifications designed to resist artillery and which again cost a bomb. (laughs) The impetus this gave to the development of central governmental institutions, leading to greater taxation, the restriction of those old medieval liberties and the arrival of standing armies, able to monopolise violence and enforce centralised royal control. The second big thing lay in the history of poor Italy, forced to watch for decades as foreign armies wandered across her. She no longer had an effective local champion, and Venice remained ever more outward-facing, and as ever, in no position or with little interest in providing a champion for Italy. She had problems of her own, as we will hear. It was not just the wars that caused it, but the 16th century saw the eclipse of Italian leadership of Europe. Maybe, in fact, the wars are expression of it rather than the cause. There were many reasons. The gradual but increasing move in international trade away from the Mediterranean towards the Atlantic. The impact of the rejection of humanism through the Counter-Reformation. The political disunity of the Italian peninsula in contrast to the increasing centralisation of Spain, France and England. Altogether, they meant that Italian influence and power will ever more be eclipsed. And the third impact was that distraction preventing Charles from doing what he really wanted to do, go and crush Protestantism in his lands. Charles V then faced a bunch of priorities that would have broken a lesser man. Seriously, this is a man who learned to rub his tummy and pat his head at the same time. But I suppose you could boil it all down to three priorities. Don't allow yourself to get beaten up by the Valois and in return, get that lost Dukedom of Burgundy back if you can. Number two, crush the Protestant Reformation in Germany and bring them back to the one true faith. Number three, fight the infidel challenge from the east in the form of the Ottoman Empire. So we have dispatched the first, the Valois-Hatsburg Wars, with an airy wave of the contemptuous podcaster's hand. As Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles was supposed to defend the faith as his oath demanded and the extent of his distraction was clear for all to see. The most obvious was, of course, the continuing Reformation in Germany, but there were others. When I did the Shedcast I mentioned on religious toleration and its growth, one of the things I found out was just how successful Protestantism was in Austria. I was astounded, seriously. I had always assumed that, as the Habsburgs, backyard and staunchly Catholic in the 17th century and onwards, that Protestantism had made little headway there. How wrong I was! By 1570, 90% of the Austrian nobility was Protestant, along with half the burghers of Vienna and other cities as well. It required dedicated persecution to bring matters back to the desired status quo of the Habsburg, which included 100,000 Austrians being forced to leave their homeland and seek a new one with a Protestant ruler. Expulsion survived as late as 1731, when 20,000 Protestants were forced to leave Salzburg. Now, not sure where we left it, but the German diets had at least proved a meeting point between Catholic and Protestant princes, a place where they could talk to some extent away from the confessional lines. Of course, that rarely meant peace and harmony, as the 1529 version at Speyer demonstrated. 
This was the one where the Lutheran princes protested against the anti-Lutheran pronouncements of the Diet and thus created the tag we now use with gay abandon, Protestantism. Interestingly, it was not Charles V who presided over that Diet, and if he had, it's quite likely the protest would not have happened. Charles V had intended a conciliatory line to maintain unity in the face of the Ottoman threat. And this is a theme, actually, of Charles compromising with the Lutheran princes so that he would be able to harness German resources in Italy and in the East. Nope, it was his brother Ferdinand who presided at Speyer. Ferdinand was a far less conciliatory figure than was Charles. Imperial antagonism taught the Lutheran princes that they must unite to survive. In 1530, the Augsburg Confession created a statement of Lutheran faith, produced by a man called Philip Melanchthon, about whom I feel frequently guilty. He really should have played a suitably large part in my narrative, and yet he has not. He was a crucial and influential thinker in translating and communicating Luther's teaching. I am sorry, Phil. Anyway, in 1531, the German princes Philip I of Hesse and John Frederick of Saxony created the start of the Schmalkaldic League, the name coming from the town at which it was first agreed. Neither Philip nor John Frederick, in my humble opinion, were well served by their portraitists, but you might want to look at the website to see if you agree. I appreciate I'm once again being shallow and trivialising important events in world history, and I apologise. A little. I might wish they'd also found a town with a simpler name to help out later historians. Borna looks like a nice place. Anyway, the Schmalkaldic League grew, adding states such as Brandenburg, Denmark, the Palatinate, along with a mass of smaller territories and imperial cities. It had some successes, such as the restoration of Duke Ulrich de Württemberg, and throughout the 1530s and early 1540s, it profited from Charles's multiple priorities. By the mid-1540s, however, Charles V was looking once more at his soft woolly gloves and realising that if he was to shift Lutheranism, those gloves would have to come off. There must instead be at least the application of a rolled-up newspaper, and a mailed fist would probably be much more appropriate, and maybe with the withdrawal of the use of the comfy chair on Wednesday afternoons. In short, he was going to have to be severe. In 1546, he made a truce with the Ottomans, and he agreed a peace with Francis of France. This was one of the intermittent breaks in the Habsburg-Valois hostilities, and this was the one that allowed Francis to send a fleet against Henry VIII that sent our hero scuttling for cover. He carried out discussions with the Pope, did Charles, and by the judicious dangling of the prospect of access to the comfy chair on Wednesday afternoons, there was much rejoicing and agreements to work together. Actually, the agreement was based on the more substantive agreement to help Pope Paul III's son, Pierre Luigi, gain the Duchies of Parma and Piacenza. As it happens, this is an agreement that later comes unstuck, so Paul III withdrew his support for the Emperor, you know, the bloke trying to reimpose Catholicism on behalf of the head of the Catholic Church, otherwise known colloquially as um, the Pope. This is such a constant theme in the 16th century. Given the fundamental nature of the religious divide, I keep assuming that Catholic will align with Catholic and Protestant with Protestant. And yet, material and dynastic considerations constantly get in the way of the religious struggle. I guess that's maybe not so surprising for the dynasts, Valois and Habsburg. But for the Pope? It's easy to forget, and important not to forget, just how far the Pope was a temporal ruler as well as a spiritual one. Anyway, in 1546... 
Charles V finally got his act together. He finally had a gap in his schedule and could roll up the newspaper and apply it to the German Lutheran bottom. He gathered an enormous army of over 50,000 men. He also gained the allegiance of a pivotal figure in what happened next, Duke Maurice of Saxony. Maurice had been raised a Protestant, but Maurice hated the leading Lutheran prince, John Frederick of Saxony, seriously disliked him, came out in spots in his presence, bowel-loosening dislike. Am I getting the message across here? Maurice was constantly conflicted, as it happens, because on the other hand, he had a very strong relationship with the other leading Protestant prince, Philip of Hesse. Gosh, life is difficult. Actually, Maurice demonstrates the basic problem the Schmalkaldic League had. Really, the only thing that united them was Lutheranism. They knew war was coming, and yet could make no decisive attempts at a preemptive attack or to defeat Charles's allies in detail before he could assemble them and get them together. Anyway, to cut a long story just a little shorter than earlier, in 1547 the two sides faced each other at the Battle of Mulberg. Expectations were high for the Protestants and as unrealistic as for an English football team before a major international tournament and the results were just the same. Hideous chaos and defeat. The army of the Schmalkaldic League was half the size of Charles's army facing them and they did less than half as well in the battle. The League was at an end. John Frederick was captured. Morris was promoted from Duke to Elector. In the Catholic camp, all were smiles and sneers. In the Protestant camp, Morris was reviled as a Judas. John Frederick was forced to hand over most of Wittenberg in return for his life, so losing the Protestant spiritual home. Unfortunately, the victory did not remove the problem. After a quarter of a century, the Veruca of Protestantism had dug deeply into the imperial foot. Digging it out would be a big problem, and actually having Morris on his side didn't really help Charles now with the rooting out because he had to keep Morris happy. Morris could shield Protestants to some degree. But in the short term, Charles was triumphant, but Charles' triumphant was a reasonably fair matter, and he tried at least for some compromise in rubbing out Lutheranism. The Augsburg interim were decrees that Protestant princes were required to adhere to within 18 days. Interim, because the Council of Trent was then supposed to create a permanent solution to bring the two religious sides back together again, a vain hope anyway, since as we've seen, the Council of Trent wouldn't give the rough end of a pineapple for any compromise. The Augsburg interim restored papal supremacy, required the restoration of the sacraments, and so on. Actually, Philip Melanchthon tried hard to work with the compromise and create a text that all could sign up to. But it was not to be. The Lutherans wouldn't wear it. Hundreds of pastors left, including Martin Busser, leaving for England, by the way. Hundreds were rejected from their churches and they refused to accept the deal. By 1552, the Prots were in open revolt again. And hey presto, their leader was Maurice of Saxony. If there had once been a chance to squeeze the Lutheran genie back into the Catholic bottle, it had long gone. The result was the Peace of Augsburg, confirmed at the Imperial Diet of 1555. The Peace of Augsburg saw the arrival of a new principle, Cuius Regio, Aeus Religio. Whatever the ruler, so the religion. Lutheranism was here to stay. However, Augsburg was not about toleration. Augsburg was about Charles V's exhaustion and it was about coexistence. Cuius Regio, Aeus Religio enforced uniformity. It reaffirmed the idea 
of different religions living peacefully together being quite impossible. The freedom to worship according to individual conscience as quite absurd for early modern men. You were required to believe what your prince told you to believe. The peace did also allow for people who could not agree with the religion of their ruler to leave and go and live somewhere else, which is quite a concession, actually. Only in a few imperial cities were the different religions to live together. The peace of Augsburg always felt rather temporary, a solution that looked a lot like a truce, which simply separated the combatants for a while. It's important to recognise just how embedded was the idea of heresy. It's easy to think of it as just bigotry. But heresy was an offence against the basis of the dying medieval view of the world, and we must always have the context firmly in mind. So if we go all the way back to the 5th century and Augustine of Hippo, we can find the basis of the church teaching that heretics must be forced to listen. While Augustine himself did not advocate execution, he drew his text from Proverbs. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. It was not possible to just have a different opinion about religious truth, because as far as the medieval Christian was concerned, there was something absolute called the truth, which had been revealed by God, so there could be no other beliefs. There was no individual conscience such as we like to think of it. The medieval conscience was a slate written on by God. So that also meant that heretics were being willfully evil, willfully going against their conscience. Theirs was not an honest mistake. It wasn't just a difference of opinion. It was a willful offence and defiance of God. And the cost of the heretics' willful act of rebellion was not simply that their own individual soul would be lost. Their actions threatened the withdrawal of God's favour from the whole community. And everyone knew the cost of losing God's favour, plague, fire, war, death, etc. This is critical to understand the stubbornness of the principle of uniformity and of intolerance. The offence of the individual threatened the safety of the whole community. The Pope was not just being a hegemon, he had a duty to protect the community. There were obvious political reasons why the rulers liked uniformity as well. The support of the church for the kingdom was an enormously powerful tool. But rulers also took seriously their duty to protect their communities from heresy and thus the wrath of God. So, we're not to judge, is my point. So, Augsburg was a not inconsiderable achievement. But not only did it feel like unfinished business, it also held a critical flaw because it made no provision at all for Calvinism. The Reformed Church was still outlawed. And it was Calvinism that would provide all the dynamism and growth in Protestantism over the rest of the century. So it was a flaw that would result in the misery and death of millions. Charles V was a brave, hard-working, deeply religious man who never really recovered from the death of his empress and wife in 1539 and grieved for her for the rest of his life. He was beset with the constant pain of gout, through which he relentlessly worked and travelled. By 1555, he'd come to the end of his tether, and rather remarkably took the Cincinnatus or King Lear approach and decided to abdicate, although unlike Cincinnatus or indeed Elton, he had no intention whatsoever of going back to his plough. So, between 1554 and 1556, Charles gave away his lands piecemeal. He gave them away in such a fashion because, of course, he was simultaneously head of various kingdoms and states rather than being the head of one combined entity. The final ceremony was in 1556 at Brussels 
when the emperor abdicated at his ceremony, leaning on the shoulder of his favourite and confidant, the 24-year-old William, Count of Nassau and Orange. You'll be hearing that young man's name again. Charles's lands went two ways. Sicily, Naples, the Duchy of Milan, darling, the Netherlands, Spain and all the colonial possessions of Spain went to his son, Philip. For the rest, his lands in the north and the east, Austria, parts of Hungary, parts of Germany, went instead to his brother Ferdinand. It's an interesting situation. On occasion there's debate about why he did this, and it's proposed that the empire was just too complicated to manage. But honestly it's not really clear he was being that strategic. Part of the decision had been made for him, since Ferdinand had been elected King of the Romans way back in 1531, and so was already standing in the anteroom of the emperor and Ferdinand was already in possession of the Austrian lands. So really it just made sense, path of least resistance. Really the odd thing is that he gave the Netherlands to Philip, understandable I suppose, given that he's, you know, his son, but it was to be a fateful decision. I'm not sure how good your geography is, but Spain and the Netherlands are hardly next door, and they were not connected by lands belonging to the King of Spain's possessions. And so Emperor Charles V retired he retired to a monastery. You may at this point have an image of an old man thankfully living the rest of his life as a simple monk, easing himself to his knees on the cold stone floor in the early hours, called by the bell, a flash of skinny wasted white flesh as he prepared to pray. At last, ex-emperor, able to live the simple, pious, spiritual and unmaterialistic life of the lay brother alone. If so, it's not an entirely accurate image. He did in fact retire to a reasonably obscure monastery in Spain, but he did also take with him 50 or 60 of his nearest and closest servants just to, you know, make sure there was somebody to help him to his feet. He was also apparently surrounded by timepieces, a reminder of the lack of time he'd had as an emperor. He finally died in 1558. There we go then, part one of the history of 16th century Europe. Next week we will turn our gaze eastwards to the Ottomans, and then we'll turn it back to France, which is its very best to tear itself to pieces. Until then, everyone, thank you for your attention and your patience, and see you all next week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.